We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha. Thanks for listening to the Layman's Lounge podcast. Uh, go over to thelaymanslounge.com and you can see all of our other interviews and articles. Today we're talking with Johan Snell, author of The Seven Lives of Abraham Kuyper. That's and correct. the forthcoming book, Abraham Kuyper, A Life in Journalism. Brother, what do you think about all these Americans and Brazilians and Canadians talking about Kuiper and neo-Calvinism and the free university? Like, is that weird to you? Yeah, it is. <laughs> and, and new to me, too. Really? Uh, I don't have a neo-Calvinist background myself. So I was, so I'm only, I, I, I only saw part of this world once in 2016 at, at the annual Kuiper conference at Princeton when it was still uh, at Princeton, but I couldn't I couldn't see any of these conferences uh, since then. This year I failed because my brother was hospitalized. Mm. Uh, I hope to be there next year and see see all those brothers and sisters who are into Kuiper uh, <laughs> uh, because we don't we don't have them here in the, in the Netherlands. Real so okay. What is the yeah? What is the what? A, so okay, for for us here in America, we're like Kuiper. Everyone loves Bavink more. I will say that yeah. everyone loves Bavink, the theologian. But the people who love Kuiper really, 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 really love Kuiper, <clears throat> yeah. and that's me. Um, but what my question for you is like, yeah, what do what do the modern Dutch people think? like of Kuiper that is like the Christians and the theologians and the you know political folks and also just the uh the, the Klein Leiden the rank and file yeah you know these terms Klein Leiden great um uh, hard to say he's hardly well known nowadays he was very well known in his day but uh since then he was mostly honored and uh followed by his own follow- followers, the so-called Reformeren, the neo-Calvinists, uh, but they disappeared during the last decades. Uh, and there, now there's hardly any following left. And with that, he became part of history. So the, 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 the average Dutchman doesn't know him at all. No way. Uh, uh, so it's hard to sell books about him, actually. <laughs> that is unbelievable. The, pub- the yeah. publishing yeah. house thinks something about Kuiper. No, not, let, let's not do that. <laughs> He, he, that's it's something for it's, it's a historic it's a historical subject that's what it is and what is it, the residual, what's the residual thoughts on kuiper from like the historians because as far as i could tell it yeah. seems to me he was the equivalent of trump like people either loved him or viscerally hated him i mean yeah, it seems absolutely. like they really yeah. they really really hated him. i think even i mean when i was so your book is in dutch I tried yeah. to read, I, I read it using really? Google Translate. So I think I only got like 30% of it understood, really? but I, right. I was able to follow it. I think um, that's commitment on my end. I, it was good job. I could tell it was good even through Google Translate. But um, I mean, I think, I don't know if you mentioned this in the book, but I read elsewhere. He had like in maybe the 1905 prime minister, like re-elections, like the, the mantra was, essentially anyone but Kuiper and I feel Absolutely. like over here in America it was like anybody but Trump people were yeah. so upset with him 
to the point with Kuiper, they even offered him maybe two bodyguards. Like, so, so did they really hate him that much? And why? Um, hate is a big word. Mm. They didn't hate him, but they did, did want to continue with him. Uh, so for once, just only once, the liberals, the so-called liberals, Dan, and the socialists combined in order to beat him, and they succeeded. Mm. Um, so he, he, he didn't have less voters in 1905 uh, compared to 1901 when he won the elections, but the votes went to his opponents uh, because they combined. Right. Just wanted to hate, hate is a big word. He was also admired also by his opponents. That's all. Yeah. I mean, even when I when I was reading your book, just talking about when he died and as he was dying, just even old, you know, so-called enemies, if you will, yep. just paid their respects. Unfortunately, in the American context, it is nothing like that. It's like gloves off. So yep. in, in 2020, um, the Layman's Lounge, you know, the website and podcast, uh, I did a yep. poll where I asked a bunch of neo-Calvinists and scholars and theologians their five favorite books of the year. And um, sitting at the top of that list for the number one favorite book of the year for James Eglinton, who was the Absolutely. biographer yeah, okay, of Bob Inc. Yep. Yeah. Uh, here's what he said about the seven lives of Abraham Kuyper. He said he's able to read it actually. He knows Dutch. Yeah, yeah, he read it in Dutch because he actually yeah. speaks reads Dutch. He yeah. said this new Dutch biographical work on Abraham Kuyper, not a conventional birth to death biography, but rather a series of seven studies on neglected aspects of Kuyper's life, is outstanding. Biographical research on a figure like Kuyper is hard. Because Kuiper was an uh, was a extremely was an extremely complex and thoroughly documented figure. The degree of technical skill shown in Snell's book is impressive. By showing us Kuiper as an alpinist, globetrotter, celebrated speaker, scholar, activist, journalist, and statesman, Snell has achieved something major. This book needs to be released in English. <laughs> Are we going to get the book in English? I didn't. I didn't know he wrote this. Where did he uh, write this? This was in 2020. My website, the Layman's Lounge. Really? Um, he. I asked. I emailed maybe a hundred scholars. What's your favorite yeah. book of the year? And he yeah. put yours as number really, one. Really, really. I, I, I feel very honored. I, I, I didn't know. Yeah. 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 No, that's cool. But the last line says this book needs to be released in English. Yeah, I and... still hope. It still hope it works one day. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I went to I went to the Barnabas Foundation. I don't know it, and they are very uh, open to uh, to funding a translation. Uh, but I have to uh, to offer them a co concrete uh, proposal, so I will do that. Yeah, man. We I thought maybe we my American connections are very bad, so I I need to connect more people there. Yeah. Yeah, actually, let let's email after this. I have a few thoughts, but anyways, <laughs> I um. So I'm a part of a, you know, neo-Calvinist Facebook group and yeah. And a few people there are are Dutch and they've read your book and they're like this book is so good. Um there's a few critical critical as in like people who seem to really not like Kuiper who have recently written biographies over there in um yeah. in the Netherlands. And the same goes over here in America like we have um little like biographies like Richard Mao's and Mike yeah. Wagenman, they're very short and they're good. They're more like not yeah. necessary biographies. They're like sketches, but 
weaving in his thought. Same with Craig Bartholomew's Contours of Kuiperian Tradition. But, and then we've got a few maybe from the 60s and 70s. Um, I've read those. They're enjoyable. I just don't know how how you real dislike it. You, you may dislike him, but uh, actually by far the most outstanding is one by Jim Brad. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about yeah. because Jim Brad is a full-on liberal. And it seems yeah. like he literally hates Kuiper. And I say that because as I read so much of Kuiper, uh, of of Brat's stuff when he's referencing Kuiper, even some of Brat's recent articles about like what is historical Christianity. I mean, he's he is so far at odds with with Kuiper that no, I didn't know. I don't even I understand know. why they'd be on the same page. But my yeah. question here was: Is that a pretty accurate, um, regardless of what he feels about Kuiper's view? Would you say that that's a pretty accurate and um, complete bi biography? Uh, it's not complete. It, it, it's 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 focusing on his thought, uh, and it does so in a very original manner. Uh, it it knows a little. It, it knows relatively little about his life, his deeds, and his actions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I do exactly the opposite. I, I describe his life and the things he did, uh, and I'm less less uh, um, capable of uh, of presenting his thought. Right, I did so, right. of course. I did so, of course, but not not in the way uh, Jim Brad did. But I know nothing about Brad. I only read a book with great admiration. It's, it's actually because the, the the one Dutch biography on him never translated in English is twenty years old and and also released uh, in twenty twenty again. It's by uh, uh, Jeroen Koch, a historian, and that's one who really hates Kuiper and yeah. also and and I uh, I'm a big critic of his biography I, I don't feel it it's good and i think he really misses the points too many times so what i did is implicitly absolutely implicitly correcting him nice uh, and he and he's mad about it but i i, ne I never mention him i simply ignore him um <laughs> <laughs> uh, beca because uh, i i don't want to bore readers with a, a sort of uh, yes and no game about yeah. between him and me but what I do is trying to correct the image he presented by the opposite one, by an opposite one. That's awesome. Even, the opposite one, of course. Even I've heard that of that that cock um, biography and that it's it's sort of a hit piece. So that that's good to know. Um, so your book isn't necessarily chronological, but it's no. very interesting the way that you laid the book out and what you based it upon. Can you can you unpack what that was? I base it upon this little note I found among his papers, between his letters, actually. And it was a small transcript of something he wrote when he was set, uh, around his 75th birthday in 1912. 1912 uh, for, in all probability, a French uh, biographical dictionary. It was written in French. Uh, and it is addressed to someone in France, probably in Paris. Uh, I never found the, 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 the biographical dictionary or the encyclopedia in, in which it was uh, published. It must have been published because The Guardian quotes from it in 1920 uh, in his obituary, obituary oh, wow. uh, on Kuiper, uh, quoting him as an alpinist, for example. Yeah. Um, so I know it existed. I, I couldn't find the, the source. But I found a note that Kuiper uh, 
um, kept uh, um, uh, kept in his own archive uh, the, the nine hundred or one thousand words that he uh, filled in for this bio biographical dictionary, probably. Uh, so what I did is is translate this sketch. It is very hard to read because it's a transcript and 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 fastly written. Uh, so I, uh, I I uh, I I I transcribed it and 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 of course uh, translated it from French, and then I found his own biography in one thousand words. Uh, so what I did is base my book on his own biography and then elaborate elaborate on that. Yeah, and it wasn't that it, you it's, only... it's a sort of, sort of sort of looking back on his life by someone who is 25 75 years old so he's looking back and he uh he summarizes what he did yeah and just so the reader can know it's not that you you limit yourself to those sources but those are you focus on what he focused on and then you bring in the historical context and and yeah. how those things fleshed out and many biographical details that are new because i read the sources uh, exactly the, the thing that his official biographer didn't do or hardly did yeah two sources especially his letters uh, also his private letters where you find many biographical details and also his newspaper so the thing he wrote in his newspaper which is uh, quite a lot that there's how uh, many biographic biographical notes in his uh notation in his uh, newspapers in, in articles he wrote for his newspaper paper so i had a lot of source material and, and much of it, of it was completely new i think 75 percent i hard to tell of my biography is completely new wow uh, it isn't found in in the uh, existing literature so far so did you go to like where do you go to like the basement of the free university and there's just boxes and you know it's or what, where, what <laughs> kind I'm of happy, i'm happy i didn't uh, well actually actually it's forbidden because it's uh, you can't go there um it's all digitalized it was uh photographed in the 1980s and and those pictures were digitalized during the last couple of years it's all online nowadays Oh wow! What <laughs> so are some... you can all check it. The whole <laughs> the whole Kuiper archive is online, uh, uh, put online by Princeton and the and the Neo Californism Institute here in uh, Utrecht. Right, right, right. I but I, I, I didn't have things. that. But but I didn't I, I didn't have uh, uh, admission to to that uh, when I wrote the book. I only had the PDFs. Okay. Um, handed over to me by someone at Princeton who uh, helped me out of my problem because I had to read actually I had to read them on all micro you call them fishes I don't know My, yeah microfish microfilm something like that yeah, yeah. microfilm which is horrible uh, oh so that's, that's what I did during my first month it's, it's impossible you have to you have to find it on those microfilms yes. and then to, to make pictures of it and still you can't read them Oh, so I was very happy when someone at Princeton helped me out and gave me all the, the PDFs of it. Uh, That's cool. Which means that I could read all those archives. Uh, the same applies to the newspapers simply on my on my laptop. So I uh, mm. wrote the whole book using 19th century sources, uh, using nothing but my laptop. And and uh, and I could simply write on, a, on my on our work. Amazing. And my other colleagues did other things. I, the book the book is actually just uh it, it is i believe an, a nice book but uh i only wrote it as an extra uh, i was i was working on my phd thesis uh, on kuiper and this is what uh, this is what i found extra and i couldn't use for my phd thesis no so way. It, it's a sort of uh 
sort of present to the to the to the reader uh, the, the things i found that i couldn't use <laughs> that's pretty amazing yeah what? so i wrote it, wrote it in a few months just as an extra i think it's fascinating that you that you um were able to read so many of his letters i think in yeah. english you know what let me grab this let's have this this is there's a there's this little book in english called kuiper in america oh and i didn't know it and this is, this is, I think it's from Dort Press. This yeah. is, I think it's only like, you know, 83 pages. And it is the, his letters to yeah. Joe, uh, or no, to Joe. Yeah, Joe is his wife. Was she alive? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes, she, she was. was. To Joe and like his daughters. And um, this was the first time <laughs> I laughed at him because this is the first time I could, you know, I've read a, a lot of Kuiper, but reading his own letters is funny because you could kind of see the kind of man he was. And I thought it was funny. Just the first half of the book or these letters he wrote, he was just complaining. Why don't you guys respond to me? Write me letters back. Yeah. I miss yeah. you the entire time. And then yeah. um, <laughs> and the other part, the other half is it was actually sad, but funny. He was complaining about his constipation and his bowel movement. Actually, yeah, I, 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 yeah. <laughs> I felt so yeah. bad for him. But um, <laughs> the rest of it, he was a pretty big deal. And it, it doesn't come off as prideful. But man, this guy was a big deal. He met with when he came to America, he met with the president, he met to all these yeah. different institutions, they had all yeah. these different things. But I did want to ask you. When you read his letters, like what kind, and not even just his letters, but I, I wanted to ask you in general, and this is something I'm just so curious about, what kind of man was Kuiper? I know people like really, they said he was hard to get along with and he was all bossy and always thought he was right. Was, can, can you just give us the record? Like what kind of man, was he proudful? Was he teachable? Was he humble? Was he kind? Was did he always want to have the last word? Yes, all of it, all of it. What you mentioned, but in a but in a not too heavy way. Um, he was not bossy. Um, he was absolutely sure about his mission, and and that helped him stand stern in many occasions. But he wasn't he wasn't unkind. He was very friendly, unlike Baffing, for example. <laughs> He really? was very friendly to the people he met, also to the common people. Um, so people never uh, complained about his uh, social uh, habits, which were absolutely fine. And he, so he was wow. a kind man. Um, and, 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 and this, he was proud of what he had done and accomplished because he had a humble background. Uh, but, uh, but he remained humble all his life and always proud about his humble uh, background. And mm. so he was not... He was not uh, boasting about his better position or showing. Uh, no, he wasn't. So he he could not understand that people uh, had such a high regard of him because he always thought that he, that what he did was actually quite simple. Mm. Because he did only one thing during his whole life. He wrote articles, and that's all he did. Uh, all the action, all the things that came out of it, was done by others. Yeah, he, wrote, he simply wrote. Uh, so he worked in his uh, study, and that's all he did. Uh, and he worked hard, uh, but but he was not someone who uh, who, who tried to uh, convince masses in the streets. Or uh, so he was not a socialist who uh, 
who needed a huge crowds or something. So it, but he did like to 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 make a speech for for five or six thousand people in in a huge building, which he did. Uh, mm-hmm. But he also uh, prayed for them and, uh, and, mm-hmm. and 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 presented himself as a humble man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So no. was he very proud? No, he was proud of what he had accomplished, but uh, but in a private manner, not not publicly. That's so interesting to hear. Um, I, I know that so many people would, if they knew Kuiper was going to be speaking in the, I forgot it's called the house or the floor, whatever you guys call it over there. Sorry. If they yeah, knew the he was going to be, they, that everyone would come. Like there would be a line just because if nothing, because of his great speaking skills, which I think is one of the things that sort of he notated. So actually I might be getting ahead of myself. I, I wanted to ask you more along the lines of his personality and, and whatnot. I, yeah. I, I don't fault him for, um, he was a man of principle and he believed everything rooted from a few simple principles. And so yeah. of course he's not going to be moved on those things. So why would you even get mad at him? Right? So he's, he, he believed, he was just good at like connecting the logical conclusions all rooted in the whatever the single principle of the sovereignty of the lord might be um as far as kuiper at home you said he wrote all the time and i think not all the time just three and a half hours a day well that's what i'm gonna say he was a writer i think so he got up he he i think he took breakfast alone i don't recall wrote for wrote until lunch had lunch with the family then took visitors maybe until dinner then dinner with the family and that was a huge deal and then he walked alone like for two miles and went to bed about 11 is that two is hours that right? it, it didn't reckon in uh, it in in miles within hours he, he walked for exactly two hours no way <laughs> exactly and that was hours. alone right and always alone or almost always always alone because he um uh, he, he tried to to think about the things he would write the next day. Yeah. So he was walking, but no, but he didn't see anyone. People always described him as someone who was walking with his thoughts uh, uh, with him. Uh, but he did so every day, two for two hours, exactly two hours. That's crazy. Yeah. So he started in late in the afternoon, and what he and and uh, had he walked for one hour in the afternoon, he would walk for another hour in the evening, during the evening. But always exactly two hours in total, in total every day. <laughs> good for good for him, you know. Yeah. And he seemed—I know he was fit because, as we'll get to in a little bit, he was always—he was a mountain climber. And you know, you yeah. see these pictures of him. He—he he seemed kind of stocky. I think he wasn't fat. I think he was just a husky, sort of a husky man. <laughs> what, but, what's husky? Um, husky, yeah, kind of like stout, kind of just, just, yeah, a little. Um, well, he did he, when you he were did, reading. He did gym, gymnastics every day, even as an old man. <laughs> yeah. Like stretching. Yeah, stretching and and with uh, uh, like exercises. Exercises, exactly. That's the word. Wow, good. good yeah, even him. as an old man, he did so. He did so. So he tried good. to keep fit. Good for Bram. So yeah. on his home life. When you read the letters and just his home life, and then when you read from his wife, who unfortunately passed away sort of sort of early, um, when I read him and I'm reading this with modern eyes, I kind of feel almost bad for his family because he seemed like he was so busy. But the only time he was with them was 
lunchtime and then i think dinner lunch and dinner and then that's, like that's when correct. they would go away for the summer i kind of felt bad for them and he had what like seven seven children or something yeah eight in total but the youngest one died when he was nine yeah um yeah but he did have time for his family every day which could not be said of many men of his time wow especially not his kind of man wow. uh, so he always so he also played and fought and and uh, with his children so he so actually as you well later in life you 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 uh, discovered that he had actually quite a good relation with all of his children he also wrote letters with them many of them um, so he had a sort of personal relation with each of his kids mm. uh, and they never resented his uh, his work uh, later really? in life. All of those. Uh, so we never... we saw that all of them, all of them. I know that his daughter, I forgot her name, but there seemed like a daughter he really loved or for some reason that's what we have in English. There's a lot yeah. of letters to one daughter. I Maybe she was the nurse, I forget. But so we're you're from what you saw like indeed his children all sort of ended up still loving him and i know like kuiper jr ended up being at the free university and um now didn't some join the nazis how, what do you recall no, how no, that the nazis uh, it was his grandson oh his grandson uh, the eldest son of his uh, of his own eldest son um, mm. of, of the one that who became a professor at the Vrije Universiteit the Free University mm -hmm. he he ended up as a nazi and died in the crimea in 1944 oh, as, wow. as, an, as an ss uh, journalist oh my uh, goodness yeah but he had taken a completely different court and one of kuiper's own sons his second son frederick uh, died in indonesia uh no longer a christian oh, um, wow. but he had always a good relation with his father they, they exchanged letters i did not read them actually because it was too far away from my subject yeah uh, so they always kept on uh, exchanging letters but he wanted to distance himself distance himself as far as possible from his father in the spiritual sense interesting but they, so it's good to know they were words. good to know they were still you know uh, they still sort of loved him and whatnot. Yeah, I did yeah. want to ask now about his friends and and sort of colleagues. Like here in America, like things translated in English, when one thinks of Kuiper, one thinks of Bavink. That's what we, and for, after reading Eglinton's bio, it's they seemed not really, maybe didn't really seem like really good friends necessarily, but just sort yeah. of colleagues. It seemed like they irked yeah. one another often as well. Um, but can you tell us about his connection with Bavink, with Rutgers, and I forgot the young man who succeeded him in the anti-revolution party, like Cole or something like this. Can you, yeah. Can you tell us about his circle of friends and people he worked with? And uh, he had good friends among his own uh, generation, but always uh, a troubled one with the next generation. And all the names you mentioned were part of the next generation. Mm. Um, so he had no real following in that sense. Uh, so when he was died, when he died, he did not actually feel somebody had uh, stepped in his footsteps. Um, right. Perhaps Colleen, but not really. Colleen in a political sense. Right. Um, the, the one closest to him was, of course, uh, Edenburg uh, um, um, is his name. He was governor of uh, Indonesia. 
Mm. Um, and that was the, the the only one of the next generation who was really a close friend of Kuiper, um, mm. but all the others were not. And there's something tragical, I think, about friendship with him. He had good friends, uh, but perhaps not really that much. Uh, some friends from his study years also with completely different backgrounds, um, lifelong. Yeah. Um, but I think if you try to find out what happened with Kuiper, uh, I always use for lack of a better word, the word artistic. There's something a little bit artistic about him. He mm. he does not, somehow he misses the feeling for what he does to another uh, if he writes something. Um, mm. So for example, his personal relationships with the Savornin Lohmann, yeah. Lohmann, who was his great friend and colleague and also opponent. Um, yeah. There's also something personal in their letters which it's as if Kuiper is not really understanding what Lohman uh, tries to tell him. Uh, there's something lonely in Kuiper's uh, on Kuiper's side, and I, I always I always call it uh, autism. Uh, uh, what did I say? Uh, autism for for lack of a better word. Yeah, no, not I heavy, am... but a light form of it. Yeah, interesting. He, he, he misses the feeling of what he is doing to others and. Uh, and you find it in many small details. For example, he he traveled through Sweden and Norway with a younger friend, uh, Geising, in the in the nineteen eighty in the eighteen eighties. And Geising later on describes their their great journey and how much he loved it. But he he, he, he well somehow he tells that it was not always that easy. <laughs> Well, Kuiper was in his 40s when they traveled together, and he was in his 20s. Again, this generational thing. And, um, and didn't didn't Bram say he was not an easy man? He was a man driven by his uh, mission and uh, not always easygoing. But didn't Bram say that he also didn't like traveling with this guy and these guys because they couldn't? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't. Well, he stay liked it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he <t> <laughs> So he, he needed an extra week in order to, to, to do some <laughs> extra mountain, mountaineering because he couldn't do so with uh, this young man is in this, uh, at his back. <laughs> Piper and his mountaineering, which is right. the first of the seven lives that he mentions, and it's the way you unfold the book. Yeah. And there's this picture we have of Kuiper as in his like mountain climbing outfit. And it's, it's almost yeah. comical, but it's also awesome. Can yeah. you can you tell us about this lesser known um, life of Kuiper? The fact that he was all about like mountain climbing and trekking and the Alpine. As far as I know, I'm the first one who ever wrote about it, except for his very first biographer, Twinkle, in 1990, in a book uh, read by Kuiper himself, actually, um, who uh, mentions it in one short passage, uh, a few mm. words on it. Um, so it was completely new to me and, and, and a great find to discover that Kuiper really was a good mountaineer and that, and, and that he made climbs of over 4,000 meters, uh, which is really high of it in his time. So he was an accomplished uh, mountaineer uh, for, for many decades. Uh, so he did so every summer, uh, completely uh, incognito, of course, and now. Uh, and, and mostly traveled alone in Switzerland, in Northern Italy, France, uh, Austria, uh, and around. So that the Alps, uh, and he often traveled alone for hundreds of miles, uh, long treks, uh, 
which sometimes uh, as much as 30 miles a day uh, through the mountains. So he was really an accomplished mountaineer and also a great trekker. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's that's amazing to me, and it... you only find it in his family letters. Um, so it was completely out of the of the public picture of him. Right? D did I read that he got arrested in Italy for like five days somehow? Yeah, in it Italy, he was arrested because there was a cholera cholera uh, epidemic epidemic in, epidemic, in France, yeah, yeah. and he crossed the border at the Mont Blanc. The Mont Blanc is the highest uh, mountain in Western Europe, in France, on the on the border with Italy, and he crossed. One day he crossed the border there and then was arrested by Italian troops who uh, guarded him to the to a prison and he was uh, kept in, in prison for five days. Yeah. Don't <laughs> oh. you know who I am? <laughs> no. What was his name? Bram the Bram the Great? Was that no. what they called him? Or Bram, no. Abraham the Terrible? What did they call him again? Like uh, yeah, Bram the Great later on, not that uh, that much. This was 1884. Okay, so he got, and so even when he came to America to give the, what are now known as, you know, the stone lectures or lectures on Calvinism, um, and he went, uh, that was over in Princeton, and then he traveled up to, I think it was New York, I guess maybe it's called the Andronac Mountains, I forgot, I don't even know what they're called. Yeah, right, right, Northern He did New the York. best he could to even get on some mountains when he was in America. That's yeah. amazing. This guy was really committed to the cause. Yeah. Okay, so we've got him as um, an alpinist or a mountain climber. Next one, we have him as a, uh, of the seven lives that sort of the, the second live that he mentioned and then you unpack is sort of a, a globe trotter. What, what's yeah. going on here? Uh, it started early when it, with his visits to London and I, and, and I tried to, to show that London actually influenced him quite a lot because he uh, discovered uh, the Anglo-Saxon uh, Calvinist world, world there. So his Calvinism was actually born out of his experiences in London and the books he found there. Mm -hmm. He started reading uh, Burke especially. Mm. And Burke was an, a, a direct inspiration for him of discovering his international Calvinism. So mm. neo-Calvinism stems from his uh, meeting with the Anglo-Saxon version of Calvinism. Mm. In both uh, England and America, and Burke was very instrumentally uh, in, wow. instrumental in that. Mm. Uh, that was early in his career in the early 1870s. Uh, and then you you mentioned, you know, that you bring that up about his influence of neo Calvinism. So most people who enjoy Kuiper learn about him. They say, "Oh, we we know about his." Um, this is the common narrative that we that we've come to see yeah. as how NFO he uh he his father was a you know a reformed minister yeah. maybe he was lukewarm we don't I don't maybe something like this and then Kuiper when he's young maybe he's eight or 12 he he writes on a piece of paper I repent I'm sorry for being a bad boy or whatever and then eventually right. he goes to um goes to school and but he went, I guess he went to be, or he wanted to be a sailor, but for whatever reason, he goes to school to be a minister. Yeah. And then while he's there, he's super bright and he's studying um, Calvin verse, uh, not verses, but Calvin uh, and what's his name? DeCosta, not DeCosta, Calvin and some other gentleman. Their view, yeah, Alasco, Alasco, the yeah, Alasco, Alasco. Yeah. their views on the church. But even at this time, he's not really a Christian because everyone at the time is real super liberal and woke 
yeah. and modernity. And then, and then the points start shifting this again, I'm re, I'm rehashing what we believe what, and yeah. I would love for you to fill it in correct or whatever. Okay. And then at this point, maybe, um, he's, he gets, he gets a calling. He ends up being a pastor. And I think some, some of the pious, um, people wouldn't even attend, attend the church and they wouldn't even have him come over and they start in, in their, you know, in their crass language, repeat back to him what he later realizes is Calvinism and Synod of Dort and all these things. And then that coupled with his engagement to his, at the time, I believe 16 year old fiance. And I think he was like five years older. She gives him the air Redcliffe, this book. And then somehow all, all of a sudden this slowly becomes um, orthodox. That's what we've heard. Is that right? Where is it wrong? Are there other people? I'm pretty sure you mentioned there's actually another huge influence or I don't know. Could you clear us up here? No, it's it's rather correct. It's it's the story he told, and we don't have many other sources, so it's and, and there's no no reason not to believe him. Uh, actually, when he was a preacher uh, or sorry, a minister in his first village, uh, his first uh, moment was of course uh, reading the the, the novel uh, The Hair of Radcliffe, uh, which converted him in a more emotional sense to the church. And second one was when he when was a minister in that village and he uh, met common people who didn't trust him as a minister because they were uh, strict Calvinists. Um, um, but something really happens with Kuiper in that year, 1866. He both uh, converts, for, converted to, to, say, an orthodox form of Christianity, but the same applies to his political uh, views. He wasn't uh, conservative until that moment. Conservative meant uh, monarchist, uh, very strong anti-papist, anti-Catholic. Uh, and he converts, converts to, to the anti-revolution, anti-revolutionary uh, direction of Groen van, van Prinsen, which was completely, completely different uh, according to Groen and to him. So mm-hmm. he found he refounded himself, found himself in two in two ways, both in a spiritual way and also in a political sense. Mm. And the political conversion has never been described before. People never really oh, yeah. um, uh, realized that he didn't that he grew up really as a conservative, uh, and he's extremely critical, especially on the conservatives, the damn conservatives of his yeah. day, uh, in his early years. They were his big enemy, uh, mm. the ones who uh, he opposed most strongly. But he was one himself until he uh, was almost 30 years old. Mm. What exactly were the things? When we think of his political conversion, I think most of us would just say, well, he became a Calvinist and then he became friends with von Prinster. Are there any other things that that you've seen that were uh, little trigger things that triggered it or things that brought light? Oh, in his in the early sources, he doesn't mention those common people who didn't even visit this church, but he mentions the the, the, the teacher who was also working for the church, uh, the local teacher, say, uh, Kivit, uh, as his biggest influence, so, who was actually a, a cornerstone of the church he worked for. Wow. So it, it, it were not just common folk outside of the church, but also people, influenced people in the church who uh, mm. had a big influence on him. So, uh, but that's all very well known. The, the, so I, I didn't find anything new uh, on that, exactly that I found out that people never mentioned his political conversion, say, and it's interesting to see that it happened at the same time. Interesting. That's cool. Yeah. You had um, 
you had mentioned that part of his sort of his religious conversion or, you know, to, to Calvinism, um, that when he read the air of red, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't name it, he name it Calvinism at that moment. He does only six years later. Mm -hmm. um, so it takes him a few years to, 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 to find his new name for it. Calvinism. Interesting. Yeah. And, and you had, you had said that, that it was sort of like his, his converted him emotionally, if you will. And there is a, there's a lot of Kuiper, there's a lot of mysticism that I see in Kuiper his entire life. Yeah. Um, and I have a problem with it because I'm, I don't experience God like Kuiper did. And I really wish I did. Yeah. And so I kind of hate when he writes that, like, so I know that, you know, we know that he wrote like daily for, you know, the daily newspaper. And then every, every Sunday he wrote for like his religious newspaper. And I oh, always he wrote, he wrote for his religious newspaper, which was a Sunday paper during the week, because he wrote quite a lot of art, common articles for it. That every Sunday morning when his family went to church, he wrote a meditation for it, which was the opening on the front page of that uh, weekly, which it was a weekly because it was a Sunday paper, the year out. And he did so for two, two thousand over 2,000 times in a row. In, um, 1960, in 1916, he writes a few words down when, he's, uh, when he presents his 2,000th meditation. And then he writes that only one time he was uh, unable to fulfill his, uh, his, his normal uh, Sunday meditation when he was completely sick in 1894, when he was lying in almost death in Brussels. Right. Uh, he, had, he had a strong lung, lung uh, attack, a double lung uh, uh, illness then. So uh, only one time his eldest son took over for one or two meditations. And then he went on for 2000 times in a row. So every Sunday morning, wherever he traveled or when he when he uh, crossed the ocean, at Sunday mornings he would try he would write a meditation. All, almost all of them have been published in, in separate books. Yeah, we have a ton of those in English. Like there's yeah. so, there's so many English, and even when I was reading his letters, the from the book Kuiper in America, his letters, they always say I've attached you know I've attached the devotional whatever he called it, but I've I've attached yeah, it, meditation, pass it along it. to the editors, right? But That's like I was saying he came off real sort of mystical and you don't have to be a scholar or a theologian, but when I read those things, I'm like, he's like, uh, what's basically there's, he has this huge emphasis on the presence of God. Yeah. That's right. And I don't have that. I'm not saying it's wrong. Mm -hmm. I love God, but I never feel him. You know what I mean? I I'm just like, yeah. Oh, yeah, whatever. And I always just found that interesting and I have nothing else to say about it, but did you know, did, when you read his meditations, do you kind of pick up on that? No, too? Not many. I only read the ones he wrote during the year after the death of his wife. Right. A year long, he meditates every Sunday on death and uh, the consequence of death. So it's a sort of mourning, mm. series of mourning, uh, the death of his beloved wife. Uh, and I read, of course, the ones that uh, that, that mentioned mountaineering and, and the greatness of God uh, he, uh, he sees in the mountains. Uh, and I know that he is describing his own experiences mm -hmm. for the first time. Uh, people always took it for granted that he mentioned mountains and, and, and described something of God's greatness found there. But he simply describes his own experiences in the mountains. And in some meditations, he does. That's amazing. Yeah. And I know he... I didn't realize until I had read your book that because there is a book in English, I think it's called like meditations for the sick bed and dying or something. And I okay. didn't realize that 
that was, you know, I mean, that's what it's called in English, but those are the collected um, meditations of after his wife had passed away. Okay, so yeah. that brings a lot of sort of a lot of gravitas to them. Um, yeah. Real quick, before we move on to being a celebrated speaker, the the biggest rag on Kuiper over here in America is that he didn't go to church when yeah. he got older. Okay. <laughs> What's up with that? Is that real? Did he really not attend? Was there reasons? But instead, he just wrote the meditation and he thought that he was the church or what? I don't know. He never spoke out on it. But um, as far as I know, but I didn't find the sources myself. He didn't like uh, the minister, the minister of his own direction, the Calvinists uh, in church because they were too much of his own kind or, or more or less. Uh, 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 imicking, imicking him. <laughs> I heard, that too. I heard they just read his, I heard that they just read his meditations on. Yeah, Sunday. that's that's what I hear, heard too. But I don't know. Um, somehow he decided to stay at home and, and and write a devotional at that moment. Yeah, I think we need we need. But to, he did. Uh, he, he he did, of course, go to church many times when he was a minister for ten. He was a minister for ten years and and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 went to church daily and later on he did most so mostly mostly when he went to the uh, the, the meal how do you call it <laughs> oh the lord's supper the sacrament the lord's supper sorry the lord's yeah, supper yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so he celebrated the lord's supper and he went to church but not that often oh interesting I, I so i feel like that's still a vague thing that i wonder if that's just like folk abraham kuyper history because everyone says it but it's like where where did we where did we read that where did we first hear that all right i'm working on my dutch i'm learning i'm using duolingo the app let's see if we i can't find that out i'll circle back with you and let you know (laughs) okay Okay. he was an alpinist a mountain climber he was a, a globe trotter he traveled extensively and a celebrated speaker that's the third one the third of the lives of abraham kuyper and as we already mentioned people would come forever wait in line just to hear him speak just like it was like they would go hear mark twain they would go and hear abraham kuyper so can you can you speak to him as a speaker yeah well he was (laughs) um he didn't where was he speaking sorry where where were his venues? Was it just Always in large in large buildings in Amsterdam, especially? Uh, there were a few buildings which could house over five thousand people in The Hague and in Amsterdam, and he used them. And there was one in Utrecht too. Most of most of these buildings have disappeared, but uh, he did use them. Often more late, later in his life when he was really famous, uh, so it took some time. And before that, mostly in churches. So his early lectures were, he started uh, giving lectures in the, in the country in the 1870s, but he held them in churches uh, all over the country. Um, it had to do with the spread of the railway, railway system, just, just like in America in, the, in, these day, in those days. So the, the railway system really spread quickly and he could speak anywhere where the railways could bring him, which was only happening in his time. Um, uh, when he was a minister in his first village, he was st- still not connected by, by railway to the rest of the country. But when he was a minister in Amsterdam, he was connected to much of the rest of the country by rail, rail, uh, railway, or, sorry, mm-hmm. in Utrecht, his second city, mm-hmm. and later on in Amsterdam. Uh, become, mm-hmm. 
So Utrecht was really the start of his uh, lecturing game because, simply because railways could bring him there and bring him back at home in the same day. Okay, so if you were to ask me where did Kuiper speak, I'd say, you know, in, in the, the floor of the political arena, however you do it in the Netherlands, and yeah. he would speak at like the Free University, and he would also speak at like maybe luncheons or gatherings. What yeah. what's are those the things like? Or would he go and they say, "Hey, will you come teach at our church on Sunday?" Or would they say, "Hey, would you come speak to our women's club?" I know that's, yeah, that's like what happened later. That's what happened later in his life when he had time for that. Mm. Uh, earlier on, he spoke mostly for his party. Uh, his mostly for his party and his university. Those were the two uh, platforms where he made sp yearly speeches for. Okay. And later on in his life, he would appear in, on all those platforms where people invited him, especially the youth, the reformed youth or the new Calvinist youth <laughs> movement. This was really growing big and the only one in the world but what, where he was very proud of. So mm -hmm. they... They invited him every year uh, and other platforms like that. Also national platforms. For, for example, in 1906, he was invited in the Royal Concertgebouw in uh, Amsterdam, which is a, a concert building uh, st still existing. And he was uh, in, invited to celebrate 100 years of the National Poets, Bilderdijk. And he made, right. of course, a, a big public uh, appappearance of that. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I know... So he had two platforms, he his own following, say mostly his own following, but also after he was a prime minister, he also had a sort of national platform. Right. He was he was a polymath. I mean, he I think he he was I think he even studied, you know, not just theology, but philosophy and writing. He was like like on like um, and even like linguistics. I know even at yeah, the linguistics, first, yeah. he taught rudimentary Hebrew and he taught. um like literature and things like this. So he could, yeah, he did. he could yeah. really talk about anything when you, as you read some of, as you read all the things you read, what do you think subjects stirred him the most? Now I know the political arena is he had to do a lot of work. Like yeah. there, it was just his job. Um, but what, what subject were you like, man, this guy loves this subject. Too many. <laughs> Really? He loved so many. He loved everything. Yeah. Yeah. When, well, I tried to analyze for my PhD thesis, which will appear this uh, autumn. Um, I studied his journalism. Uh, so I also tried to analyze what he does in his newspaper. It's very hard because it's all anonymous. And so you can never tell what is written by him and written by someone else. Oh. But I found out a formula more or less to, 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 to uh, decide what is his. No way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did. Uh, and what he writes writes most about is simply about politics, but then practical politics. So simply about so so he he, he, he writes extensively, for example, about grain imports and exports, and and and, and wants to 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 convince his reader of every detail of that is because it's something important, something important that will be dealt with in the, in Parliament. Uh, so Kuiper could write on anything, and he did so. Uh, and it's always very detailed and very well informed. Uh, he, used, he, he didn't write uh, uh, out of his fantasy, but he always is always uh, using his sources. Mm. Uh, so somehow he, we don't we don't know exactly what he had in his library because his library was uh, was not kept after his death. So we simply don't know what books he had. Interesting. To, to my regrets, because I would have loved to see what he had in his library. 
but also in newspaper articles, he always uh, cites uh, recent literature and uh, recent sources. And uh, so somehow he read a lot. Yeah, and, brother. And he, he also, uh, during his travels, he also, also uh, um, found literature and sources. And uh, when he came back from his nine months during the uh, 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 travel around the Mediterranean Sea, he had he had uh, 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 big suitcases with paperwork with him, uh, so he tried to, to to find as many, especially what we call social uh, sociological uh, yeah, yeah. uh, statistics, etc. He was he was fond of statistics, for example. Wow, that's uh, you will always see him using statistics and reasoning about statistics. It's funny because I I've noticed the same thing. <clears throat> I'm like, this guy never cites anybody. He never, uh, from the things that I have in English, it's very rare that. Well, I, he does I, so in his newspaper articles. Yeah. Does he? I mean, in his, in his like, like in pro reggae, man, he's never citing anybody. Maybe Calvin, <laughs> maybe even yeah. Luther, but it's very rare. Yeah. And I'm often like, who is this guy read? So I've yeah. often wondered the same thing, you know, like I would love to know what was in his library, but yeah. I guess. Yeah, no, we don't know. Um. You're right. He could speak about anything. There's a book in English by a dear brother named Robert Cavolo called Fashion Theology. And this is a dedicated book from a neo-Calvinist who wrote about essentially Abraham Kuyper's view of fashion. I mean, this guy wrote a a full-on book about Kuyper's view on fashion. And there are countless quotes from Kuyper on fashion and it's like yeah. man, i love this guy and, and that's yeah. what uh that's personally that's what me draws me to kuiper is yeah. he's just normal like i'm not a theologian like you you and i we're not theologians we're just normal guys that yeah. you know try to try to love jesus and love others right yeah. and so he's down there with us you know um so before we move on to the next of the seven lives him as a scholar yeah. i want to ask what what drew you to what drew you to this guy? Was it just the, and it's fine if it was just an interesting um, topic for your dissertation and the, you know, but is there anything that you've, you've come to love or enjoy or glean from him? Yeah, his, his many sidedness, which is amazing. Uh, so you, you cannot not admire this man. Uh, I hope I didn't too much, too much in this book, but uh, it's, it's, you have to admire him. Uh, he was too, too many sided and too, Prodigious, um, not to, uh, to to be an. That's why I d- don't understand his, his critics, for example. Say, for example, uh, because there's no way, there, there's no there's no reason to hate him. He's simply not not um, unkind enough, etc., to hate him. Or mm. he was very kind and very open. And uh, so yeah. yes, yes, there's a lot of admiration for this. Uh, special man hey guys i just want to jump in here real quick we are talking with johan snell he's the author of the seven lives of abraham kuyper and a forthcoming book abraham kuyper a life in journalism the book is in dutch james eglinton is calling for it to be translated in english um we gotta let's let's bond together shoot me some emails let's raise some money let's see what needs to be done to get this thing in english so far we're talking about all kinds of Kuiper stuff um, of his seven lives, if you will, the seven things that he focused on. Um, 
and the way that uh, this book unfolds too. So, so far we've hit as an alpinist, you know, a mountain climber, a trekker, a globe trotter, then a celebrated speaker. And now we're moving on to Kuiper, the scholar. Can you give us, I will say the, the very first thing I thought, I wonder what he's going to claim to be a scholar about theology, epistemology, politics. Could you be a scholar of anything? So yeah. Can you tell us about Kuiper, the scholar? Well, he started studying theology, of course, one of the few studies you could do, actually, in, the, in, the, in those times. Um, but he actually began, uh, as you already mentioned in the first part, uh, as a sort of historian, a church historian. So he studied uh, Calvin in Alaska, but he continued in, the church, in, 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 in studying church history. Uh, he went to London and, uh, and, and published the sources, for example, about the Dutch refugee community living there in the 16th century. Uh, and he started um, making editions of those sources. So the, for the first ten, 10 years of his life, when he was still a minister and still working in uh, based in the, in the village where he started and later on in Utrecht, uh, he was a sort of church historian. And I simply call it historian because so his, his career started as, as, a, as a historian. Uh, later on, he continued with when he became a professor at the Vrije Universiteit, the Free University in 1880. He started lecturing uh, as professor of theology. So then he became a theologian again. Uh, he had not expected to be one because there, because there was no place for him on the on the national universities in Leiden, the one he had studied, because it was uh, he was orthodox and no, no longer welcome there. Mm -hmm. uh, so he had never expected himself to to be a theologian again. Uh, he could only be one on his own university from 1880 on. Mm. So the second part of his life, he was a theologian, uh, but I call him a scholar because he was many-sided and he, uh, he published on other subjects as well. Uh, he lectured uh, in his uh, university, not only on theology, different aspects of it, but also on linguistics and, uh, and even a little bit about mass communication, which is interesting for me, because there's no one in the 19th century who lectures about mass communication, but he does. Yeah, that's so cool. He was. Uh, and he did, of course, Hebrew, Hebrew for linguistics. Uh, also included Hebrew, for example, and Greek, and he did all that. Yeah, he was. He was. He was all over. I know there's stories of him um, with his his theological students in his like um, which class is it? The class where they teach you to be a preacher, homiletics or something. I don't know. I didn't go yeah. to school for that, but I guess he he they'd come over there. I think I think on Sunday and. He, one by one and he'd make them preach to him i yeah. think he said he made them memorize it too <laughs> i couldn't i couldn't imagine being there and but um as far as um kuiper the scholar in terms of a theologian when when i look at kuiper i see okay he starts as a sort of a his you know history slash slash theology like we were saying Yep. Then he becomes a pastor. But by, by the way, as you see, even his sermons don't really seem like sermons. They're more like, yeah. there's something else. It's like, that's a sermon. Okay. Yeah. And, and then, but then, you know, from the point he, he resigns as a pastor and has to step down and becomes politics, uh, a politician. He seems like a lifelong politician after that. Does he still fancy himself as a theologian? Do you know? Does he still love that at all? Yeah, he does, uh, because in the, in the 1890s, early 1890s, he writes his uh, uh, his magnum opus, 
uh, the, the Encyclopedia of Theology, which is really a big work. Uh, it has not been translated in English, only part two of it has been translated, but it's three part. Uh, it's very complicated, uh, uh, but it's this big view, is a really big overview of theology that he writes down. And he does not, this time he doesn't write them as articles for his daily or for his uh, weekly, but he writes the, the, the complete three volumes uh independent of that so it's a sort of systematic approach to theology uh, uh and, and and interestingly enough it's not the reformation which is the real turning point for him but thomas thomas Ruff aquino aquino really um, thomas yeah and the, and the second and the second big moment is of course his own time and he himself because <laughs> 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 it's thomas and he, thomas and he himself that's uh, the, right. big, the big turning yeah. points in christianity yeah, yeah. Johan, I, I own that book. Um, yeah, the English I'm version. Not, uh, yeah, the English version. It's only part well, two. Of course, I'm a dork, so I have it in Dutch too, but I don't speak. But no, no. I've got it. Hey, full admit, I have no idea what that book means. I no. try to read it every year. I'll, I'll bring it out. I don't even, I, it's like, I'm not even lying. I can't even understand where, what he has just said or what he's trying to say, what no. is big point is it's like yeah. man but people i can't, people, I, I can't either Jim, james eglinton did <laughs> yeah right he loves <laughs> yeah he, he, he can um so i don't know if you know about this but um i think in eglinton's book he talked about how kuiper had intended to release a dogmatics but i guess boving beat him to it do you know anything about that all no. i know is that we have three volumes of his dictagum dogmatique, which is like his students had taken copious notes of his uh, dogmatics and even and Kuiper signed off on it. But it wasn't a, like an official dogmatic from Kuiper. That's correct. Do you, That's correct. Do you, know, five, do you know anything about that? It's five volumes. It's from the 1890s. Uh, and it was uh, reprinted again in 1809, is as far as I remember. And then he more or less uh, accepts them, uh, but still, uh, he still, still, of course, explains that it's not uh, not his own wordings. Mm -hmm. So it's not his own work. It's it's done by his students. Mm -hmm. uh, he had always he had always uh, planned to do big, two big theological things: first, his encyclopedia, and, and second, his dogmatics. He never uh, finished his dogmatics because he became a politician again from 1894. Again, he was a member of the of parliament, and from 1901 he was prime minister. So mm -hmm. politics came in between. Okay, real quick, what about we we brought up Bavink ba um, again? Just because in Kuiper you think in America we think Kuiper, you you think Bavink. Formerly, people would say Bavink was like. Kuiper's theological henchman like mm. um but now that's not really not really you know Eglinton kind of showed us that that's not the way yeah. what what did what do you see of their relationship are they in America there's a term called frenemies it's like half friend <laughs> and half enemies were they frenemies or what what do you see there I really don't know uh, because yeah. I know too little about Baffing I didn't find much about them there was not so much contact between them but they were always loyal to each other so there's no no, no conflict between them interesting um so on on the crucial moments bavik always sides with kuiper mm. mm -hmm. um so i can see no frictions there um, but they were very different bavik was actually 
far less kind of a person uh, than Kuiper was. Uh, and again, this generational thing, Bowden was the younger one. Uh, mm. So they were no big friends, but there was also no big friction. You know, it's funny you say that Bob Inc. was, uh, or Kuiper was kinder because the narrative right now that many of us have come to see is, that, yeah. is Kuiper was a, a brat, was a jerk. He was irritable yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Around, and Bob Inc. was so humble and, and he would just yeah. softly put his position out there. And, and if you would like to partake, then you do. And if not, then. Yeah, I know that that image existed, but I think it's rather the other way around. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. So moving on after uh, we're talking about the seven different lives of yeah. Kuiper. Um, now we're moving on from scholar to um, we got looks like we got three left. We have activists, journalists and statesmen. An activist. What 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 is meant by this? It's an equivalent of the Calvinist. Uh, so he, he doesn't give himself a title, I, I decided, for activist uh, here because he describes his Calvinism but it's in very active terms. Uh, wow. It's the, thing, the things you do as a Calvinist in society. Mm. And that's why I call it activist. Uh, activism, activist as a word that did not even exist in his time. Mm. So he couldn't use that word. But I decided not to call him. A, I still don't know whether I decided uh, right or wrong. Um, but he describes his Calvinism, Calvinism in activist terms. So he, he describes what Calvinism means for society and what it means for your position in society. That's what he does. Is this the closest place where he would identify himself as a, a Christian or a theologian or one or the other? Is this? Yeah, he describes himself as Calvinist as a Christian. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And this and it's under this because of the seven things he didn't say. I'm a father, for example, or a family no. man, or I'm a Christian, or I'm a, a, you know, is this where he would file under the notion of a, a scholar, or I mean, or a theologian and a, a Christian man, or would he put that under his, um, as a as a, as a, a scholar? Uh, probably in his days, he would never call someone a Christian or hardly, he would not do so. He would call himself a Calvinist. So he does so here. Um, mm. But I, I think he writes for a secular French encyclopedia, and he does so in very objective terms, uh, very common terms. Um, so he does not tell the reader that he is a Christian, and the reader should decide uh, for himself, I guess. So, uh, what are so when I think of an activist, at least in in English, I think yeah. of someone holding a sign like blocking the freeway, saying, no, he's not. "You're using yeah. too many." too much emissions here stop or going on social media and, and saying that you know we gotta kick this guy out of office or whatever is that what is meant or and if not what are some of specific examples of his activism or his calvinism applied all the things he organizes mm. uh, and he was actually sort of, he was seen by his contemporaries as a sort of revolutionary literally um, the king hated him for that reason, for example, as, because he was this revolutionary, but also many of the, the leading liberals really saw him and the leading socialist uh, leader of his time, Trulsa, as the two, the two revolutionaries. So he was seen as an activist by his opponents. Mm. Uh, and he organized many things that were uh, a sort of complete breakaway with that tradition and with the common ground that they had. For most of the Protestants of his time, he was a complete um, uh, traitor of Protestantism because he sided with the Catholics in order to find a new majority. 
right. which was completely uh, un un impossible uh, then, and he did so. So he was an activist in many senses. You could call him a Calvinist, but if, if you do so in Dutch, and the same applies in English, you call him a Calvinist, people think, oh, Calvinist is not interesting. If you call him an activist, you have to read what he actually did. So I decided for activist instead of Calvinist. Well uh, Calvinist is something of the past, something very old-fashioned and something completely mm -hmm. unrelevant. Mm -hmm. But he was seen in his own time, not, not as a Calvinist, but as a revolutionary. Mm -hmm. What are some of the... What are some, I know his, you know, the, the church, um, the church issue and the education issue, yeah. are those the two biggest sort of things in his, and, and creating a party? What would you say were the chief accomplishments as far as in, in this, in this realm? All of them. Um, his biggest failure was, of course, creating a new church. He had his his mission had been to 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 make the Protestant Church the, the Reformed Church Orthodox again, and he ends with with taking only a small part of it with him into this new new Calvinist Church, um, also called Reform, but with a different word. We use, use different words in Dutch. Uh, so only eight percent sides of, of the church membership sides with him, uh, and his uh, and his. Uh, Goal had been to 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 uh, to take the whole church. Mm. So his church is actually his big failure, and his party is his big success mm. Mm. because the party succeeds in winning the elections and even and making him a prime minister and uh, being an influential uh, political power. Mm. Um, but he does so because many of his uh, voters were not part of his own church. Mm. Uh, most of his voters were part of the the common reformed church, the ones that he left behind. Mm -hmm. And only with those voters he could fight, uh, win a majority. Yeah, so, I politically, see. so politically, he was much more successful than in church. And I think, uh, not knowing a lot about, it's always totally baffling to me that you formed Kirk. And it's so you know, I'm America. I'm a Southern <laughs> Baptist. So yeah. trying to figure out what that's all about. But from what I see, and can for the for the you know Americans and non-Dutch, can you? It, Basically, what I what I saw was like the church became orthodox, the, the so-called reformed state church, and yep. he wanted to have a free church, uh, yep. I guess, apart from the state, which is awesome and novel. And in America, a lot of people would say, oh, Kuiper, he's a schismatic. And they would see, and look yep. at he, he didn't succeed like you just said. And they would say, yep. oh, his system was stupid. But I thought that was awesome what he was trying to do, because from what I read, they were trying to. um confirm I, I forget the language but say you know a seven 18 year old man or 20 year old man he wants he what says i'm a christian i want to take the lord's supper but the yeah. guy's sleeping around and he's a total scumbag and everyone else just says wave him through and kuiper's like no nah, i don't we're not waving these guys through and yeah. that was it and he just couldn't do that in good faith that's and correct. so that's why he wanted and and from what i could tell he wasn't it was like luther he wasn't trying at first to start something new he was just just trying to sort of reform it now having said that um is that the right diagnosis that's, that's correct that and and why like i know there's a fellow named hoodmacher i think who and uh yeah i think he worked at the free university and he actually quit oh, i forgot it's all running in my mind now but can you explain to the the uh america the non-dutch how the church thing unfolded and was he dumb for doing that no 
his aim was, of course, to, to change the whole church into a free church. Again, he, he considered the Church of the Dutch Republic from 1600 till 1800 as the, as the free church of the Dutch Republic, and he wanted to change the church again in that uh, historical free position because it had become a sort of state church in the 19th century. Uh, and he failed because most of most of his following did not follow him in his new church in, his, in the one he established in 1886 and 1892. Um, so his big aim was, of course, reforming the church. He had never uh, aimed at creating a new church. So he had never claimed, wanted to be a schismatic. He was actually uh, pushed out of the church and, and uh, he had no charge. Mm. Uh, so, so making him a schismatic is not a schismatic is not completely honest because he couldn't do much about it himself. He was simply uh, forced to leave the church, forced out totally. of it. Yeah, and I just want every he, every he, hater to hear that because that's yeah. something that's hurled up against him. Um, yeah. Speaking of modern anti neo Calvinists who hurl things against him, they yeah. say neo Calvinism is a failed system because. From Kuiper's time, what what yet abides? What did he build that is re, that remains? Have you any thoughts on that? Yeah, in the Netherlands, not that much. Uh, he was very very influential. So much of the 20th century is only you can only uh, much of 20th century uh, Dutch history can only be uh, understood if you know Kuiper, mm. because he had a big influence on how politics uh, developed and and how the church developed both of these. Uh, but his legacy has, has completely disappeared during the last decades. We had a sort of cultural revolution in the 1970s, and then his churches crumbled away, and uh, his political party too. So there's very little left. Uh, uh, the, the, the little things that are still a direct heritage of him are very small, mm. um, both in, in terms of church and in ter terms of politics. Well, so he, he's has a street, he has a street named after him, right? <laughs> many street names, historical street names. They're not just one, but many of them. Um, most most towns have one it's because he was a prime minister. So it's nothing special. Okay, so... so he, he's, for the Netherlands, he is absolutely a figure of the past. Man, he's just... And also the... one who is seen as responsible for much of the wrongdoings of history. Really? And, yeah. Um, I spent not slavery, but uh, <laughs> um. uh, but we had a sort of system where different uh, um, different societal organizations uh, for every sort of the, the Catholics, the socialists, and reformed all had their own uh, broadcasting uh, system, uh, yeah. newspapers, etc. School yeah. system, even even hospitals. Yeah. And he's, he's always connected with that. And the funny thing is that he did not have much uh, interest in that and did not actually uh, uh, foster it. No way. Uh, that's that's what I have always thought. I thought, no, well, Kuiper, he didn't. That is crazy. Yeah. That's not from him. People always think that fear sovereignty means that every uh, direction, every uh, yeah. group has its own means. Well, he did. He did. He, not mean that at all with fear sovereignty he thinks about societal fears not mm -hmm. cultural fears so wow. he doesn't think about catholics or or, or, or neo-calvinists or socialists he thinks about societal organizations especially mm -hmm. in the sphere of culture and sphere uh, uh, sphere sovereignty is later on um, also um, put into practice in in the the socio-economic sphere but that was not his original thought his original thought was about arts in his in his world Arts had to be completely autonomous, and journalism had to be completely autonomous. And journalists had to to deal with their profession among themselves. 
and, and their responsibility. So journalism had to be independent because politicians should not have any say on journalism. It had his own sphere sovereignty. That's what sphere sovereignty for him means. Journalism, arts, uh, schools uh, should all be independent from the state. You've got a lot of Kuyperians rolling over right now, kicking and screaming by by saying that we might have to have a, another dedicated talk just on that. But yeah. you brought up journalism, which is the second to last one of the seven lives. And this yeah. is your wheelhouse. You are you are a journalist. So could you mm -hmm. I'm a journalist teacher, a journalist teacher. Can you um, man, when I think of Kuiper, I think of a not really a theologian, but kind of I think theologically astute. And then I think of a polit politician big time. But I would I would say this guy was a I, mean, I think you said the same thing, a writer and his medium is through his newspapers. Yeah. Yeah. Could you talk to us about um, just high level for those of us who don't don't know what is the Herald and the standard and what just even the like the historical overview of him as a journalist? And and then after that, what what did he do? What was his goal? Um, he wanted to change society by creating a new newspaper called The Standard in 1872, but he had already started with a weekly that existed already. So he started as a journalist in 1869, uh, which is a very historical moment because it's the, it's, it's the early start of Dutch journalism in that year. So he started in the very beginning, he's, he's typically a first generation journalist. Mm. Uh, then, then he establishes with friends an own newspaper which became very influential. It had not a big readership, but it had a, a big influence called The Standard. And he wrote for it how, almost half a century. His big hope was that he would end his career there uh, as editor-in-chief in 1922 when it, when it would be 50 years old, but he, he died in 1920. Yeah. So that's his journalism. But the other side of it is his weekly called The Herald, which is a Sunday paper meant for Sundays. Uh, and it's all on devotion. Uh, so it starts always with a devotional that he wrote and many articles. And he wanted to change the church by that means. So mm. he had two big goals, change society or change society via via uh, politics by his newspaper and and do the same with the church via his uh, weekly mm. are those papers so still he was writing? mainly a politician who wrote in the newspaper and mainly a theologian who wrote in the weekly mm. uh, and that makes it not, not that's not, not not enough to call him a journalist but he did many things more because because he did so he became part and parcel of the journalism movement in the Netherlands. And he was also uh, uh, a chairman or a president of the journalist movement uh, for three years, mm -hmm. uh, which means that all of his liberal and conservative and socialist colleagues uh, chose him as, as a leader. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Do you know um, two things? One, are, are any of those papers still in print? And two, can you just go to the antique store and pick up an old copy of the standard laying around or are they hard to find or they're still uh, easy to find so i can do my best uh but they ended up in the second world war because they were uh, the, the, this newspaper was forced by the german occupiers yeah. but as all newspapers to bring only the german news so many of those newspapers ended then uh, and, and they went on after the war with the uh, independent newspapers that had been established in secret during the war Mm -hmm. So it was followed up by Trau, and, and uh, uh, again a new uh, neo-Calvinist paper, but uh, one that came from the resistance. The standard right. had been been committed too far by the German case. Oh man! 
So you head out ended up later. Uh, his his weekly. You are a journalist or you teach on journalism. What? Where do you? Is this your favorite part of Kuiper? Because this is your this is your sphere. Are you like, oh, I love him here? Or do you <laughs> do you? How, what's your estimation? Just your own personal estimation of him. Where where? Yeah. What I found most interesting, the, the real finds that I did was that he had already that he even theorized uh, about journalism and mass communication and free speech, etc. And as far as I know, he was the first Dutchman to do so, and nobody else did so before the Second World War. Uh, so, and he did so in the in, in the uh, late nineteenth century. So, mm. uh, so in his newspapers, articles would appear about journalism and about free speech and about public opinion and things like that. So he tried to form form to make to to to, to pronounce his ideas about these aspects of life as well. Uh, which was a real find because nobody else did in this time. Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe in France, I couldn't find them, but they may exist in French, but especially not in the Netherlands. Oh. So he was the only journalist who also theorized about it. Mm -hmm. um, it's a completely unknown aspect of his life that he also theorized on things like these. Way to go, way to go, yeah. Bram. And he uh, made a, a very interesting series in the 1870s already, 1873, ab about uh, freedom of speech which is a sort of pamphlet because it's 16 articles long, quite long. It's a sort of pamphlet, which is completely comparable to uh, John Stuart Mill's uh, on freedom. Wow. It's just, but he did not like Mill at all. He knew Mill and Mill was a libertarian in his eyes and something he would not follow. Um, but it is, it's a sort of equivalent of, of Mill's uh, on freedom. Oh, wow. That's and, so good. And it's all on free, all on free speech and, and, and freedom of, of expression. I think that. Very, very early on, 1873 is extremely early to think about th things like these. Mill was also uh, quite alone in, in this aspect. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if that's in, uh, in, in English, there's 12 collected volumes of Kuiper. Yeah. It I don't was, know if I'd run across those, but I would it's in I volume 12. run across that, that article series, but I, sh I sure would love to read that. They, they are in, they are in, in number 12, I think, on, on, on charity uh, and justice. Ah, uh, okay. because I introduced them there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Welcome, <laughs> yeah. brother. Oh, yeah. I need to read those today. Wow, that is exciting. Okay, they're number twelve. So on charity and justice has as his main articles on journalism and and on free free speech. No way. That is so exciting. It's translated um, in English. Translation was quite uh, quite uh, complicated. Yeah. Uh, did you help translate? No, some no, of that? no. I I helped a little bit. Oh, that's so fun, I checked, man. I checked them. Yeah. Good to be, good to have you in there. All yeah. right, so we're, again, there's, this book is called The Seven Lives of Abraham Kuyper because he, he um, looking back retrospect, gave sort of seven different key aspects of his life and we reviewed them. And the last one is statesman. And be before we, hold on, before I get to, uh, before I get to sort of unpack what the statesman is, I wanted to ask you, What's the deal with all the cartoons, like these these mocking car? I mean, I have an entire book. My wife you have it. I have an entire book that from you know way back then. I think he even wrote the introduction. He did. Yeah, nineteen oh nine. It seemed like he was able to laugh them off, but surely they made him sad. What What do we know about these cartoons? Like, and what were the main 
because to me they mean nothing as i yeah. look at them they're so bizarre i'm like what what he's like one he's like spanking someone another one he's like i just don't understand the context of them there are about 1000 of them about him which is extremely much far more than any other contemporary and they're mainly made by two artists one is called han who was a socialist and, and hated him and made him a very bad guy Wow. And those were the ones that he often felt very much um, um, too strongly criticized by, say, or uh, Han did not, well, uh, well, they pictured him as a sort of capitalist, uh, as a sort of uh, uh, enemy of the socialists, and Kuiper was not. Kuiper was one who was very active in the social movement himself, and uh, so he felt, he felt very bad about Han. The other one was a liberal called Brakenzieck. And those are a sort of big pictures, uh, all, all very complicated, hard to explain if you don't know all the details of, of the uh, happening at that moment. The Han ones are very simple and the, the Karabrakensi are very complicated, but he liked them for very much, much more. Uh, but you cannot understand them if you don't know much of the context. Mm -hmm. And they're typically cartoon. Uh, I use them in the book, partly uh, as far as, as possible. Yeah, man. Did, did they you said that one guy i think you said hans took him too far but did yeah. they did he in in this book about cartoons some of the most harsh uh cartoons by han were left out oh really yeah. <laughs> they want yeah oh man i felt bad because, for they, because the publisher wanted to have kuiper inside in in plasma instead of out yeah <laughs> when and you then uh, kuiper wrote, wrote his own letter as an introduction yeah which is very thing. funny by the way that's funny. I, <clears throat> it's something we I brought up at, at the beginning and closing to the end. I, like, <clears throat> I'm very curious how Kuiper like viewed himself and his work. Like, was he? And just, just I, again, more like Kuiper the man. And I know yours were a lot of his actions, and I'm not so curious about his thought process. But was he? I, you know, I know he was just really sad. Like you had said, he was really bummed that he wasn't going to be able to make it to finish the newspapers. And and I I could tell that he was really disappointed that there seemed to be no one he could hand off the party to. And, yeah. and just uh, what did he die? Pretty sad. Was he? I mean, he wasn't mm -hmm. lonely, but, you know, like how, how do you? Yeah, the lines. He died more or less confused, but not in his not in his beliefs, but because he had uh, uh, he had the, the dementia, mm. uh, so he died a lonely man, not not being able to do. He he couldn't write during the last year of his life, or hardly did. The only thing he still wrote till the summer, and he died on November the eighth. Till summer, he still wrote his devotionals. That's mm. the only thing he still wrote during the last six or eight months of his life. Mm. He could no, could no longer write for his newspaper, and the people who met him didn't recognize him at all. And he had, so he, he had—I uh, don't know the technical term for it, but de dementia. Wow, I had no idea. No. Dementia is like—I think it's like Alzheimer's disease. Is that kind of the yeah, same? It's not Al Alzheimer's. Like... A different version, but I've, I forgot the name for it. Oh man, I need to find out what that was because I had yeah. never heard about that. That's too bad. I know he just yeah. sort of would sit up in his chair and you know look out the window it's really sad man yeah yeah because <laughs> I, I feel like i love the guy you know and i'm so grateful yeah, 
I'm grateful to the Lord for Abraham Kuyper because his influence has impacted my life and stretched out into my family and I hope my community. And so I love him, not just because he's a fun hobby, but man, the Lord has been pleased to use him in my life. Yeah. But as far as this last one, statesman, I mean, it's we've already talked so long, so I won't keep you long. We could go hours. Like he was a statesman above all else, right? What 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 can be said? He started as a politician, of course, but later in his life he was seen as a statesman, especially internationally. Um, uh, he was invited for dinner, for example, by the D- German emperor, who was the really, really big emperor, uh, William II, Wilhelm Wilhelm II, who knew Kuiper personally, and he was invited by the Belgian king. Belgium was then a bigger country than the Netherlands, and the Belgian mm-hmm. king was extremely rich. He was invited for one or two weeks in his personal palace and uh, seen as a sort of statesman there. And, and when he travels around the Mediterranean, he was received by all the royal houses around. So in Greece, in Romania, in Spain, in Portugal, uh, he even went to the Sultan in uh, Istanbul. But the Sultan had Ramadan and didn't uh, didn't receive visitors at that moment. But so he, he paid, of course, just simply friendly visits there. But he was somehow very well known internationally in his later life. That's so he awesome. was always called a statesman, and he was actually uh, uh, presented on on the, on, the, on the front page of the New York Times sometimes, which was I very, heard that very, and I went very to... rare for for a Dutchman. <laughs> oh, I I've been looking for that a copy of that. I don't even see a digital version of it. I I would love to see what that looked like, but a small a small a small news announcement about him, his premiership, etc. But he was more or less well known. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah, I know. Awesome. I mean, he, he met with McKinley out here, the president yeah. he met with a bunch of folks. So, yeah. I mean, that's, that's exciting. I did want to ask you about the, what was popular opinion? Okay. Just from looking from the outside, you see, oh, here's a guy, he was the prime minister and then, but he did not, he wasn't reelected. And so yeah. as an American, you think, oh, if someone ran for president and they didn't get it, then the the popular the people didn't like them anymore. It's hard to tell, as I as I told already, he didn't lose votes, but the the the, the opponents' votes were combined, and we mm-hmm. had a we had a district uh, system at that moment, just like in England, more or less. So if the opponents combine, they can beat you. You, and don't need more votes for that. So he didn't lose votes. He lost. Uh, he, he lost. Uh, the opponents decided to work together. You hear that, Kuiper haters? All right. That's good. <laughs> I always thought it. He felt, felt there was no majority system then, and he was not elected president. He was just a prime minister, and uh, his party lo- lost some some seats. Mm. I I always thought sort of he fell from grace because of the. Um... The re- his response to the railroad strike. Yeah, so no, that's, that's the reason why socialists, uh, especially because that were the only one, everybody agreed with Kuiper. So he was not hated for that at all, except for some socialists. And those uh, decided to vote for once with the liberals uh, against Kuiper in order to get rid of him. Uh, so that was a, a main reason. Socialists normally never did because they regarded the, the liberals as a sort of enemy. Uh, but this time they decide to to vote against the government, say. Mm-hmm. So they combined with liberals. All right. This has been so much fun. I wish I was at The Hague drinking a beer with you right now. Yeah, that's, that's a better idea. 
or that especially be in Amsterdam, Amsterdam is better. Yeah. Wasn't one of his best friends own a uh yeah, I meant Amsterdam. Wasn't one of his best friends like own a brewery? Yeah, you know? absolutely. Hofi. Hofi. Oh, that's that him. <laughs> yeah. And I heard they just started that. They beer owned the, the biggest brewery of the Netherlands in Amsterdam, um, the Gekroonde Valk, the, the Crown Falcon. Um, and he was his biggest sponsor as well. That's a good, that's a so good. So much, much of what Kuiper accomplished was sponsored by Hovi, by, by, by beer. Yeah. That's good. And the, and the brewery was reestablished a couple of years ago. So it, it exists again in Amsterdam. All right. I'm going to work on my, my Dutch from Duolingo. I'm going to meet you. <laughs> I want to meet you out there and we're going to meet with um yeah let's do that with me you and harink it'll just be a random klein loiting with you two and i'll say all right guys cheers okay. to bram um last question for you as we close out you are working on publishing your your is it your thesis um yes is it my thesis abraham kuiper a life in journalism can you just give us a peek a sneak peek of that even though i'll have to have google translate it for me <laughs> <laughs> I hope it could actually be, be be translated in English because there is a proposal to do so. Uh, okay. It will, be, it will be published not as a thesis, but, uh, but also as a book. So it will be published in Dutch. I wrote it in Dutch because I thought this is only in, of interest for Dutchmen, but there, someone now decided that it might be interesting to translate it in English as well. Um, and it's just about his journalism and about his views on journalism, et cetera. But it finds a lot of new things so it's completely new mm -hmm. and it really makes a new it's it's, it's it's the subtitle is actually an alternative biography because it turns upside down his own biography if you regard him as a journalist and see that he did everything he did as a journalist wow so wow sort when of new that view come out? Him. as i already told he was a politician mostly by by writing articles in his newspaper and he was a theologian theologian mostly by writing articles for his weekly so nice. the base, his daily base was his journalism. Oh, I love that so much. The, the most interesting thing is that he also theorized about it and was active in this journalist movement, uh, the first generation of it. And also mm -hmm. on an international level, for example, because of for that reason, he was also received by the French president in his palace, etc. So, so he even traveled as a journalist uh, internationally. Oh, that's awesome. When, yeah. when does that book come out? Uh, in uh, late uh, October, uh, my promotion will be in November the 2nd. Awesome. Okay. Last question for you, brother. Did you come across, what's the coolest, most interesting antidote or letter or story or uh -huh. correspondence that you, that you found, even if you didn't write on it? Not in journalism. Uh, in journalism, it's his theories, it's theorizing, say, uh, but in his life, his alpinism, that was completely new and completely new to me. And I, I find it a big uh, find to, to discover in his letters what he all did in the mountains. And at first I thought it, it, it can't be anything serious. And then you find <laughs> out it, and then you find out it was really serious. That's uh, amazing. Yeah, he was really among, uh, among the better mountaineers of his day. Oh, gosh. And nobody, and nobody knew, not even in his own time. Yeah. Yeah. He, did he didn't talk did much it. about himself, huh? Sorry? He didn't talk. I mean, even when his wife died, he didn't really mention it. He didn't out yeah. in public. He he kind of kept to himself yeah. in that. But his his like you said, ex his examples weren't just made up. They were usually real examples. Most of the examples he uses in all his work are from his own life. But people never never uh, realized that. But I found, found out that he always 
takes his example from real life, from his own life. Awesome. Brother, yeah. this was so fun. We were talking today with Johan. Is it Johan or? Yes, yeah, Johan. You, you pronounce it very well. Okay, we've got Johan Snell. He was the author of, he is the author of The Seven Lives of Abraham Kuyper. How do you say that in Dutch, brother? The Seven Levens van Abraham Kuyper. There it is, folks. And then uh, in October, hopefully in October, his forthcoming book, Abraham Kuyper, A Life in Journalism. Um, really enjoyed this time today, brother. That was a long one. Like, that was really long and that was so fun. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Really a big pleasure. We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad. We came to cheer the sad. We came to leave.